This forum is part of City Club's Health Innovation Series, sponsored by Medical Mutual. We are grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon. I'm sorry we're a few minutes late, but we had some technical difficulties that we had to work out. But welcome to the City Club of City Club of Cleveland. I'm Marlene Harris Taylor. I'm the managing producer for Health at Idea Stream. It's February 4th, and you're with a virtual City Club forum. The arrival of the long-awaited Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines have sparked hope that the United States is finally reaching the beginning of the end of the pandemic. However, vaccinating millions of people quickly and efficiently has proven to be a daunting task. While public confidence in the vaccine is rising, a December Kaiser Family Foundation poll indicates that 70% of Americans do plan to get the vaccine. Many are skeptical though. Distrust of the government, uncertainty around the vaccine, the development process, fear of the side effects, and historically racist health policies and clinical experiments are all reasons Americans are hesitant to roll up their sleeves. You know, for those that want the vaccine, the demand greatly exceeds the available supply, and that's causing frustration and fear, especially as these new variants of the coronavirus spread around the country. Today, we will talk with experts about the local vaccine distribution process, and we're going to hear about the efforts underway to provide information and education to individuals and communities who are reluctant to receive the vaccine. Joining me today is Terry Allen, the Cuyahoga County Health Commissioner. He's responsible for executing Ohio's vaccine distribution process in Cuyahoga County. Robert Jennings is always here, also here. Robert is the executive director of the National Public Health Information Coalition. That's an organization of professionals who aim to improve America's health through public health communications. And also with us is Dr. Sherry Dixon-Williams. She's a pulmonary sleep and critical care physician for the Metro Health System and associate professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She was the first person at Metro Health to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. As in every city club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-541. 5794. That's 330-541-5794. And we're going to take your questions a little bit later or bring your questions into the conversation a little bit later. And also you can tweet. You can tweet them at, at the City Club. That's at the City Club. And we're going to try to work in all the questions that we get. Now before we move to the conversation, we'd like to start by sharing a short video that was created by the Metro Health System. I see it as a, an instrument to save lives and prevent tenacious pain and suffering. And I would hope that if there are any anxieties in the community, the nation, the world, that we would be that we will be able to overcome them quickly so we can overcome this pandemic and when we think about uh, now the hundreds of thousands of deaths in our own country and around the world the vaccine is a blessing The Reverend Otis Moss Jr. is an icon in the Cleveland community. And, and Dr. Williams, it's so wonderful that Metro Health made this video. And I'm assuming the video is targeted, or one of the main targets is the African-American community, where some people are hesitant in that community to take the vaccine. And Dr. Williams, you were the first person at Metro Health to receive the vaccine. Now, was, was that intentional? 
for the community to see an African-American woman as the first person to take the vaccine at Metro Health? So I will um, first start by saying thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for showing that uh, video. It's, it's quite inspirational. And um, I would say that for sure, um, my selection as the first person probably served um, numerous purposes. The, the first is that I'm a critical care physician. And so I know that um, in terms of taking care of patients, I have firsthand knowledge of um, what it is in terms of this disease ravaging um, our communities. I will tell you a funny story that when I was first asked to get vaccinated, I thought that I was just going to get vaccinated and it would be uh, sort of me in a room and they would tape it and then they would show it at a later date. I didn't find out that it would be sort of live and with public media until the day before. And by that time, it was too late for me to sort of run for the hills. Um, I would never leave my good friend and colleague, Dr. Brooke Watts, hanging like that. And so um, the morning that I, I was going for uh, my vaccination, I actually called my 80-year-old mother and, and I asked her to um, pray with me that, that I would um, have faith and, and, and uh, overcome my, my fear and, and nervousness. I was actually working in the ICU that day. And I said, um, of all days, they picked um, for me to show up looking like something the cat dragged in. And, um, you know, when, when people in Hollywood uh, look, look uh, sort of without their makeup, they call it au natural. Um, for, for me, it was just, you know, straight up looking ugly. Um, but, 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 but I, I, I after, after getting over the, the initial um, sort of um, anxiety or, or fear, um, I, I really and truly had a moment where I recognized the significance. And the significance was I was afraid, but I am here because I have a message. And that message is really a message to people in my community that look like me, um, that I know that you're afraid. Um, I'd be lying if I said that I hadn't had a moment of fear, um, but, but you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. So that's where I was. Well, that was so wonderful to see you do that. Now, we actually sent some health reporters from our history, so we got that video. We put it on our website and on our social media sites, too. And you were looking great, by the way. <laughs> you're, so, you're so kind. <laughs> <laughs> but that was wonderful that you did that and you, you worked through the fear. Have, have people said anything to you? Have folks stopped you in the grocery store or anything to say, hey, I saw you take the shot and that gave you the courage to take it, too? You know, it's interesting you would ask that because um, actually quite a few people, even friends, parents. So um, my daughter's high school friends, their parents called and said, I saw you. Um, people that have been patients of mine said, I saw you. It has been probably the most rewarding experience to know that um, something as um, simple a gesture as being seen and overcoming a moment of fear has made a difference in other people's lives. I'm, I'm very humbled by that, actually. That's wonderful. But Terry, Terry Allen, the health commissioner for Cuyahoga County. Terry, we know for sure, though, that African-Americans locally, across the state, and nationally are not taking the shot at the same rate as others in the community, don't we? Well, we certainly know, uh, Marlene, as uh, Dr. Williams knows from her time in the ICU as a, as a critical care pulmonary physician, that we know that African-Americans have been disproportionately affected by COVID. We know that they are more likely to contract COVID. They're more likely to be hospitalized, almost three times more likely, and more likely to die. These are statistics that we know and, and have seen for, for many decades across a range of infectious and chronic illnesses. And that inequity is, is I think, uh, very stark in the context of COVID. So yes, we know right now we are seeing some hesitancy and, and Dr. Williams and, and others uh, through their leadership 
are helping folks to recognize and understand the issues around the clinical trials uh, that went underway to assure the vaccine safety is there, that it's very, very effective, much more effective than our usual seasonal flu shot that we get every fall. And, uh, and that this, uh, this vaccine can save lives and has saved lives. And so we appreciate the leadership of people like uh, Dr. Williams, uh, given her clinical experience and the heartbreak that she's seen uh, in the ICU to encourage folks to uh, consider taking the vaccine when they're ready. Well, Jared, we're gonna come back to talking about like, what we can do local efforts we can do. But I wanted to bring Robert into the conversation. And Robert, you are a communications professional. And from what you're seeing, are we doing the right things in terms of getting the right message to the folks in the African-American community? What Dr. Williams did was great. We saw that video of you know, a pastor who is an icon in the community. As a professional, are we doing the right things? I would say so. First of all, thank you for uh, having me here today as well. And uh, yes, we are. We're, we're doing a lot of the right things, uh, having um, physicians like Dr. Williams um, become the role models for taking the vaccine is the right thing to do. People want to see uh, folks that look like them um, be, you know, be willing to step up and be the first ones. You know, one of the things that we are finding is that we use the word hesitancy a lot and we kind of lump the term hesitancy into one bucket, um, but there are it's more complex than that. There are reasons and scales of hesitancy. So people that are stuck right in the middle or way off to the right that would likely not take the shot, um, we need to do more. We need to educate them and we need to continually um, reach out and, 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 and meet them where they are. And that is going to trusted people in the community uh, with, the, with the proper um, public health messaging. Robert, you said, uh, you know, you told me earlier that pastors are a good way to get that message across, but other people can do that too. Right now, we're going to take a look at another video that was produced by Radio One with a person who's maybe trying to reach a different demographic than the pastors can, well, could reach. Let's take a look at that video. Yo, what up, folks? It's Maddie Wills, and I'm here to tell you that it's super important to get the vaccine for COVID-19 when it's your turn. For me personally, yeah, I don't want to get sick from COVID, but almost more than that, I want to get back to normal. I want to go outside. I want to go to the movies. I want to do stuff that requires people not being sick. So I'm going to get it. I can't wait to get it. And I think you should too. That's so great to see Radio One stepping up like that. Because Robert, you know, we often do think of the pastors, but we don't always think of the, uh, the urban radio stations, and they're so important in the African-American community, aren't they? Uh, they absolutely are, and we, we can't discount the power of the pastors, that's for sure. They are <laughs> the pillars of our community, so I want to get that out right now. Shout but, out to the pastors. Shout out to the pastors. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, they're always the go-to, and, and, and if, if when we're doing our outreach, we feel, oh, we reached out to the pastors, um, we reached out to the local politicians, so we've done our job. No. That video shows that people within the community who are trusted that folks, these younger demographic, maybe 18 to 35 or whatever, they, they sit and meet with these people every day. They have their radio on and they're listening to Radio One and, and they know this. They have an intimate relationship with people in their community. So we gotta be more forward thinking. We've gotta do a greater outreach to the non-traditional um, community influencers. So, Terry, uh, one thing people want to know is, where can I get the shot? I understand that the health department, your phone lines are being inundated with calls. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure, Marlene, and, and, and always uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I told folks um, when we, when we uh, set up the original planning for this session that uh, you were the first person to interview me way back in March when our first cases occurred. And so it's nice to come full circle and now have a vaccine to work with. So it's, it's been a pleasure to, uh, along the way to always work with you in your, in your excellent reporting. So thank you. The, um, so yes, we have a vaccine available. And uh, so the phones have been ringing off the hook. Certainly we have a call center with eight people that, uh, to 10 people sometimes that staff that call center uh, every day. 
And, uh, you know, we can get a thousand calls in there when uh, we hear news from the governor about vaccine or news for the governor about uh, some decisions that are made that have an impact, a real impact on people's lives. So we know now that we are in a stage, we, we are working our way through the, the, the healthcare workers. These are the protecting the people who protect us like Dr. Williams. And we also have EMS and uh, people who are uh, very vulnerable like our developmentally disabled populations living in group homes, living out in the community and people with uh, congenital health issues that may be at risk for severe complications or death. We also taking care of our folks uh, living in the nursing homes and, and the workers as well to give them the opportunity to be vaccinated. We've now moved on to our seniors and that began of course, we know on January 19th with those over 80. The following week on the 25th, it was uh, folks um, at 75 and over. And then we're now at a stage where people 70 and over can, um, can uh, um, get in line for vaccination. And we're also taking care of school employees and um, it's, it's step forward that we think is important. But right now we know there's a big issue with supply and demand. There simply is not enough vaccine in Cleveland, in the county, in the state, internationally available to meet the demands. So we have to tier this approach based on the National Academy of Sciences that put together an equitable distribution plan. We start with fragile folks, our healthcare folks, and we work our way through. There are now over 80 locations in the county where you can access vaccine. About 10 to 15,000 doses are being spread out in the county uh, among providers and pharmacies and hospitals and community health centers. And so we need people to continue to be patient. We really, really appreciate your patience. And you can call 211, our first call for helpline here through United Way and the county executive has funded that to help seniors sign up. It may have to wait a little bit, but uh, we know that uh, over time we'll have more vaccine available. And uh, every day, another shot in the arm is one day closer to the end for all of us in terms of getting past this pandemic. I was so glad to hear that uh, 211, people could call that number. And I'm also glad to hear you know people are also able to call the health department because there was some concern in the beginning about people having to access signing up just online. I mean, there was concerns about equity with that. I mean, what about the folks who don't have a computer? What about the folks who don't have internet? Right, I think that's, that's a big issue. And certainly uh, Robert in his days at the health department of health, we go way back, he knows about uh, communication is everything, certainly. And we know our seniors may have barriers. Certainly uh, um, our older folks, we know that they're calling and having difficulty maneuvering lots of websites. So we have a responsibility from an equity standpoint to do everything we can to try to assist folks to sign up in what is a, uh, you know, a very fluid and changing process. You know, I heard a really interesting discussion about you know, how do you decide who's going to be first in line? And one of our reporters, Anna Hudson, just did a piece about this. And you know, one of the interesting things is essential workers are not in the current group. And there's some people who say if essential workers were part of the current group, that we'd reach more folks who are vulnerable in minority communities. What do you think about that? Dr. Williams, I'll come to you with that one because you know, we have, you have to make a decision I understand Terry's right. It's, you know, there's not enough to go around. So somebody has to make these tough decisions. I'm glad it's not me, but they decided, okay, we're gonna put essential workers further back. Wouldn't that have been a, a more expedient way to reach the minority community to have essential workers up higher? Yes, and so um, this, as you said, is, is, is a very tough decision and um, a very complex decision because there are a lot of factors that go into that decision. Um, one of the key factors that goes into the decision in terms of who to vaccinate is who is most likely to suffer. Um, who is most likely to end up dying? So when you look at who's most likely to suffer, who's most likely to be hospitalized, who's most likely to die, it turns out that our senior citizens and people who are in nursing homes are those who are most likely to die and to end up hospitalized. Um, although the nursing home population is quite small, um, as much as 40% of the deaths have been in the nursing home population. So when you look at who should be first, 
um, looking at the people at the highest risk of bad outcome, along with the healthcare workers who have to take care of, of people who get ill, it makes sense to sort of start with those individuals. There's no doubt though, there's no doubt that um, many of the essential workers, for instance, um, workers who are in the homes of elderly people taking care of seniors um, need to be vaccinated. And we have to move um, expeditiously to incorporating those individuals who may be younger because they are going into the homes of senior citizens and caring for them. The hope is, however, that even though they're going into their homes and caring for them, that because the seniors have been vaccinated, they will have some um, measure of, of protection. Certainly um, in, in essential workers that work in hospitals, perhaps in housekeeping um, or um, in, in uh, food services, um, these are essential workers uh, as well. And we need to move expeditiously. As you've pointed out, um, uh, there are larger populations of minorities um, in those positions. And so we want to move expeditiously um, in, in um, making sure that uh, they are covered as well. But um, in a very complex, complex decision making, um, uh, you have to look at um, who's most likely to, to suffer and what do we know from the data in terms of um, uh, high risk of mortality and the mortality clearly is increased for those 65 and older. Um, many of our essential workers tend to be younger and so um, that that's how the, that that decision um, uh, sort of uh, comes into play. I see. So since even though there's larger, a large group of minorities in that essential worker group, but because many of them are younger, the thinking was we still have to think about the most vulnerable older folks. Yes. And, and I, I, I would say that in any complex decision, there will always be pros and cons, advantages disadvantages um, and, and a decision um, that complex can never be what I would call 100% the best decision. However, however, a decision has to be made and many times we uh, always want to err on the side of doing the most good. And in doing the most good, protecting our elderly who are vulnerable, who are in nursing homes, very vulnerable, that becomes equally um, a good thing, um, as well as it's a good thing for us to work towards trying to achieve equity in our minority communities. That is a good thing too. And we have to work expeditiously towards that goal. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm gonna have to put my glasses back on because I have to read my script again. <laughs> but I wanted to let everybody know that we're just about halfway through the forum and we're going to be turning to your questions in just a minute. If you have questions for Terry Allen, Robert Jennings, or Dr. Sherry Dixon-Williams, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can also tweet them to at City Club. That's at City Club, and we'll try to work them in. And we have gotten a few questions. And one question is about the Hispanic community. We've talked about the African-American community. But what particular messages do we need for that particular group? Have we talked to community leaders there? Are we having leaders there take the shot for a video? What are we doing for the Hispanic community? Maybe, Terry, you could take that one. In locally in Cuyahoga County, what efforts are there to reach the Hispanic community? All right, Marlene, thank you. I think um, wh what we've been working through since really uh, March when we began the response for case investigation and contact tracing uh, for COVID is we uh, established an internal equity work group that is really based on work we've done through our REACH grant, which stands for Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health. It's a CDC grant and it really gave us a springboard to focus on issues around uh, folks that uh, if they were going to isolate, if they were sick, to get medication, if they needed food, or they needed a place to stay while they, they were isolating so they wouldn't expose others. 
um, they, these uh, these gaps in equities were were uh, exposed uh, again during this pandemic, and so so we've been busy thinking about across uh, issues of income and across race where those gaps are and how to fill them. Similarly, uh, the leader of that group, Michelle Shaw, who uh, supervisors of the Reach Reach Grant, has been working uh, through the process to reach out to different communities. Uh, we've worked uh, in, in testing, for instance, uh, with the refugee community. We've worked with the um, with the uh, uh, faith-based community and the churches around testing and coordination with uh, Metro Health. And now, most recently, she touched base with the Hispanic Roundtable uh, to begin that conversation. But without a doubt, there's much more that needs to be done. I think uh, we need to identify in the way that we are uh, identifying trusted leaders and spokespersons like Dr. Williams and, and, the, uh, and our faith leaders in the African-American community. We need to identify and expand uh, messaging in the Hispanic community so we meet people where they are. They get to hear from people that look like them, that they trust. And it's incumbent upon us in public health uh, to build that, to bridge that gap because our North Star certainly is to address these inequities and disparities in society. And Robert, how important is it for when you want to reach other communities like the Hispanic community to have communications available in different languages? It's very important. And um, it shows you care for one, that you will take the time to put the um, public health communication messaging in various languages. And the CDC does a fantastic job of all their, their uh, the federal messaging. Uh, they also will help local communities translate and transcribe uh, information into various languages. So it's very important to do that. And I, I, we can always do more, uh, but certainly we can't forget uh, the other minority communities. It's the Native American community as well. You know, we, we definitely need to be having direct outreach to the Native American community, the Asian community, Somali communities. I mean, it, the list goes on uh, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a job, it's a tough job, but we have to do it. And so how do you decide, since, you know, as you say, the list can go on, how do you decide well, we're going to you know, translate it into this many languages? How do you make well, this, it, it, and this really gets back to community uh, involvement. You, a lot of folks think that communications is just, you know, just kind of fly by the seat of your pants, but there's a lot of data around communication. And one of the data points you use is what is your population that you're serving? And if you have, like in the case of Columbus, Ohio, it has the, I believe, the second largest Somali community uh, in the country outside of Minneapolis. So the Somali community is, uh, you know, anything we do from a public health standpoint there, we have to include the Somali community. Um, Spanish, it, it, it just goes without saying because that's probably the, the you know, it's not the first language in many of our communities, certainly the second language in most of our communities. So you, you take a look, you take a snapshot of your communities, you understand who you're serving and you reach those people where they are. Now we're getting many questions from folks and they're, they're wondering why is there no, not better communication about what comes next? Because people have heard a lot about who's in the first group, who was, who was in the first group, right? The healthcare workers. And now people are hearing about, okay, it's the older people, it's the people over 65 who will be receiving the shots over the next couple of weeks. But then when we get to the next phase after that, it gets a little muddled and we don't hear much, uh, many specific plans about what's next. What are you hearing about that, Terry, about the next phase after that? And why is it that public health officials from the federal, state, and even local officials are not saying much about, uh-oh, I think we just lost Terry. I know Terry's been having some technical issues and he's been on his phone. So Dr. Williams, maybe you can uh, speak to that a little bit about why people are not hearing what's coming next after this current phase. Oh, there's Terry. He's back. I'll, I'm I'll back. let him. You can go ahead and take that for a minute, Dr. Williams. And then Thank we'll you, Dr. Williams. Terry. Um, so uh, many people are probably aware that um, the rollout of the vaccine is really something that is a coordinated approach um, with the state as well as the CDC. And it has to be in um, sort of uh, in step with the manufacturers. Um, certainly vaccines go through an approval process. So you can't 
really be rolling out a, a, a vaccine that hasn't yet gone through the approval. So for instance, um, Johnson & Johnson has a new vaccine. We're all waiting for it to come out, but we can't make plans to vaccinate people with that vaccine ahead of the approval process. So there has to be a somewhat of a phased in approach and a process that takes into consideration the manufacturing piece as well as the prioritization of those being vaccinated and the sort of distribution um, throughout the, the country. So um, all of those pieces have to be taking, taken into account. So, um, so what the, you're saying is, you're kind of talking again about the supply and demand thing we talked about earlier. Is that why, Terry, that we're not hearing a lot about this, what comes next? Is are we waiting to see what the supply will be? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of factors involved. I think Ohio has generally been following national guidelines in terms of how we've rolled out the vaccination process. Um, I, you know, I think people across the country, there are some variations state to state. But part of the thing we're dealing with right now is there are in this county about 230,000 people over the age of 65. So that's a big group. And if we're seeing 10 to 15,000 doses per week in this county, we've got to spend some time working through uh, the seniors. The next question, of course, is who's next? And, and that's not an easy question. There are a lot of ethical considerations and there is no one right answer. As Dr. Williams pointed out, you try to do the best you can. So we have to consider essential workers, uh, people that are handling our utilities, our water, our electricity, you know, are handling all of our, our, our sewer related need, needs in terms of uh, uh, assuring that all of our utilities work effectively. Uh, what about um, our food production? And, and uh, certainly the essential workers as as has been noted, um, often are, are lower income folks. They often are people of color and they are at risk in, in interfacing with the public on a regular basis. But then we also have, uh, we've heard uh, concerns from the early childhood community that would like to be next, from law enforcement, from people with chronic illnesses like asthma or diabetes or people with HIV or people with cancer. And so you're weighing these difficulties. I was saying even funeral directors, I understand, are saying, hey, you know, we absolutely also COVID in the next phase. And what about us? So there's so many people who are raising their hand who are saying, what about us? But what are you hearing, Terry, from um, ODH, from the state, from the governor? Are they giving any indication about which groups will be in the next phase? I think they're weighing those, uh, the, uh, um, the challenges that we just described very heavily. This is, uh, this is not an easy decision. And I think uh, that they're going to take a very thoughtful look at the next stage, uh, even as they have on the previous stage 1A and 1B. So I think we need to ask people to be a bit patient knowing that the state's doing the best they can uh, in the development of the process, looking at the national guidelines to see what the next best step is based on the vaccine supply we have available. Okay. People are also, we, we, we've got a question about where, uh, if I get the vaccine, can I decide where I want to get, which one I want? Because we know that the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are both approved. So can people decide, hey, I'd like to have the Moderna or hey, I'd like to have the Pfizer vaccine? Can people decide that locally? I guess uh, that I, I can start quickly, I guess. Um, so basically often as Dr. Williams knows, we get shipped the vaccine that's available to us in the state. And so right now, vaccines are being shipped around the country, and we often are receiving, we may receive Moderna one week, we may receive Pfizer the next. And the idea is to get as much vaccine, whatever, uh, knowing that they're both effective, to get them out as quick as possible. And so often, we're not in a position of being able to choose. It's what we have available uh, to distribute in the community. And so it depends on where you go. So if you go to uh, your doctor, through, through the hospital, or if you go to a pharmacy, you just get whatever that particular place has? Basically, yes. <laughs> I see you nodding, Terry. Was that a yes? Yes, it is. I, I, I don't want to, I'm sorry if I'm occupying too much time. I, I'm always okay. surprised that, that uh, yes, you get whatever they ship. One week, it could be Moderna. The next week, it could be Pfizer. But whatever you get for your first dose, you need to make sure it's your same for your second dose. If you get your first dose for Pfizer, your second dose should be Pfizer. First dose Moderna, second dose Moderna. And as Dr. Williams noted, we're excited that there may be additional vaccines on the way to increase our supply. 
And I think we're all hoping that, Doctor. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I would definitely say um, uh, to follow up uh, with Commissioner Allen was saying is that um, whatever is available, please take the opportunity to get whatever is available. Um, there are some that are hesitant because they've seen on the news where the the new vaccine that's coming out, Johnson & Johnson, may not have as high an efficacy or work as effectively as the first two vaccines. And what I would say about that is the data also shows that that vaccine has some real advantages in that it is a one-time shot as compared to needing to. And so it makes it easier to distribute. And so people should take advantage of the fact that it's come their way. The other thing is that when you look at what is the most important factor, and remember I said the most important factor is trying to eliminate people who get severe disease such that they're hospitalized or such that they end up being in the intensive care unit or dying, that the new vaccine that we hope will be out soon does have a very high efficacy rate. It's even higher than the flu, the regular flu vaccine. So I think that the Johnson and Johnson one you're talking about the Johnson and Johnson. Yes. So, Johnson even, and Johnson. so even though it's lower in effectiveness than Pfizer and Moderna, it's still very effective, much higher yes. than flu. So so when you're looking at preventing severe disease, meaning people who end up in an ICU or people who end up dying, those uh, uh, looking at that as the outcome or the end point, this vaccine is still pretty close to 89, 90%. So it's, it's the overall effectiveness may be a little lower, but when you look at the primary endpoint in terms of preventing severe disease, it's quite high. Um, like I said, into the, the, the 80s. Uh, and so, um, it, it has the the advantage of being a one-time shot. It has the advantage of having a very high efficacy on preventing severe disease. And one of the things to keep in mind as we're struggling with these new variants that are coming out is that cutting down on transmission, meaning passing virus from person to person, it's very important. Every time the virus goes from person to person, it picks up a way of beating, um, uh, a way of enhancing its survival. So as it goes from me to another person, it learns, it learns how to enhance its survival by making a change in itself. And so the way to prevent the mutations is to prevent transmission from person to person because that's how the virus learns how to beat, beat the odds of being extinguished. Dr. Williams, will the, vac will the current vaccines work against these variants that we're hearing about from South Africa, from the UK? If you get the vaccine, will it work if you, against these variants? Thus far, much of the data suggests yes, yes. And um, people are continuously uh, providing surveillance on that. People are already saying if with our surveillance, we find that um, there are additional mutations, right? So mutations can be happening even as we speak. Um, they, through the surveillance, they being researchers and scientists, will be working on we need to have some sort of booster that takes into account these changes or variations in the virus. So the beauty of, of, of this, um, how would I say, vaccine process, even though there's a lot of hesitance, is that the scientists and researchers who have been um, at this for decades um, are, are highly skilled and professional in this. 
They know what it takes to do the surveillance. They know what it takes to make changes. They know what it takes to sort of um, anticipate the, 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 the next step of, of, of the, the virus in terms of um, the mutations. And so um, we, we have to follow the science and, and the evidence here in order to um, make a dent in, in the pandemic. in the African-American and other minority communities. So, and, and when you look at the state dashboard, you can see the number of people who, who, who are getting the shot and they're breaking it down by ethnicity. And you can see that African-Americans are not getting the shot at the same rate and they're not getting the second shot. Is it because people are not, don't have access or is it because people don't want it? I mean, there's real reasons why folks in the African-American community particularly are a little suspicious. Well, I think it's it's both. And I think that uh, that, that is a very complex question because when you look at hesitancy as a whole, um, you could almost say that many of the folks in the hesitancy realm are just wait and seers. They wanna wait, they don't wanna be the first in line. Typically you have about 20% that'll be your first adopters. Then you have 20% that'll say, I'm not doing this ever. Then you got that 60% in the middle that need a reason to move. And so safety is an important thing. It's, it's funny that a lot of the, the um, surveys will say that, especially African-Americans, uh, Black Americans will say, we just need more information. And that's a polite way of saying, I wanna wait and see. I wanna wait and see if this thing is safe because that's my biggest concern. I don't wanna be a guinea pig if it's safe. And there was a doctor that I was on a, a, another uh, webinar with who said, he has more questions about what's in the vaccine than he has about what's in their bag of potato chips. So it's just, <laughs> so some of the questions are unfair and are being scrutinized, but it is that I wanna wait and see I want to see if safe, then I'll be willing to to move on uh, getting the vaccine. Okay, but there are some real reasons, Dr. Williams, that people, uh, you know, some of the folks listening and watching may not know the history here. There's some reasons that people in the black community in particular are uh, hesitant, right? Absolutely, and um, I think um, uh, many are aware of the, um, Tuskegee syphilis uh, trial slash experiment, um, which um, started in 1932 and actually went on for 40 years um, until 1972. So it hasn't been that that long ago um, that this took place, and in, in, in definitely, in fact, in my lifetime, despite my youthful appearance. Um, and so. Um, when, when that um, is so fresh in, in people's minds and when it has been something as horrific as we had a treatment and a cure for a disease and we just didn't even offer it to certain patient populations, um, it, it, it becomes a, a really uh, bitter thing and, and tough for people to, to get over. And let's face it, um, we, we placed a, a value on those lives, which were poor Southern Blacks, um, and said, it's okay that we don't treat their syphilis. And um, when President Clinton actually apologized on behalf of the government, the United States government, for this atrocity, um, he himself admitted that this was racist. And so it has a history that is challenging in terms of moving forward. I use the word challenging because it is a challenge, it is a barrier, but this is what equity is about in terms of meeting the challenge and in terms of getting over the barrier. Um, I often um, uh, quote my mother who um, has some really terrific sayings sometimes and um, even though I've at times been hard-headed, I, I really um, appreciate one of the things that she told me was, if you keep looking in the rear view mirror, you're gonna wreck the car. 
And so we, we have to acknowledge that this happened. It was wrong and it was racist. Um, but since that happened, there have been a lot of committees, a lot of review boards, a lot of reports that have been put into place to ensure that this kind of atrocity doesn't happen again. And we can't continue to look in the mirror and wreck the car when ahead of us is really something um, very dangerous, something very serious, something that has disproportionately affected black and brown communities. And we have to you know, not cut our nose off despite our face. We have to um, find a way to um, acknowledge what happened, put things in place so it never happens again, and then move forward looking through the windshield, not the, the, the rear view mirror. And so- um, that's a I, great, Dr. Dr. that's a great message. And I wanna get uh, Terry to react to that. Mm -hmm. uh, Terry, how do we move forward here in Cuyahoga County? How much control do we have on the local level in terms of, like, for example, can you set up, will you be able to set up specific clinics in African-American and Hispanic and other communities? Well, it's clear, it should be clear to everyone to have very little control over my IT capacity here at the moment, so I'm playing through that. <laughs> Lots of curveballs. Um, so I'm just glad to be back on the screen with all of you. Um, but, I, but I think, uh, yes, what we've learned, uh, certainly from the spring in the testing world, we all know back in March and April, there were no tests to be had anywhere. And we were scrambling to, uh, to be able to test folks to understand what was happening. We felt like we were flying blind. We were able to then partner with Metro Health to do uh, testing in the community, going, uh, working with the Greater Cleveland congregations and a number of African-American churches to bring testing into neighborhoods. And that was a great collaboration to sign folks up so that they could be tested. We believe that there are many models around testing that would help serve us well for vaccination. And so we know that there are senior centers, we know that there are churches and a range of other trusted sources uh, in the community where, where seniors and, and other folks often uh, go uh, for uh, exercise or go for socialization or go for spiritual um, support. And so we should connect with those uh, institutions and we have from testing and we wanna follow a similar playbook. As vaccine becomes more available, we can then uh, branch out, but we believe uh, and and uh, I know that uh, this is important that we should be setting aside a portion of our vaccine. And we know in Columbus and Dayton, there have been conversations and we're having them here that perhaps 20% of the vaccine should be set aside to assure that we are providing equitable opportunity for people to be vaccinated. And we think that makes good sense. So you can see that happening. So Terry, hopefully you can get back to us. Uh, we apologize, poor Terry. He's He's really trying to fight through the, <laughs> these technical difficulties, but we appreciate him hanging in there. Dr. Williams, let me come to you because uh, we just got a question about when people do get vaccinated, how can they re-engage in the community? I think at the, I think what the person is asking is, can I then go, go out? Like once I'm vaccinated, can I go to the gym? Can I stop wearing my mask? What's your advice once people receive the first vaccine and even the second dose if they're doing the Pfizer and the Moderna? So the, the, the answer to the question is, you still have to wear a mask and you still have to wash your hands, social distance and do all of the good public health practices um, that you were doing even before the vaccination. And the reason for that is we know that the vaccination prevents severe disease. Um, the data is still being evaluated as to how well it prevents transmission from an asymptomatic carrier. So I can be vaccinated, but if I come in contact with somebody who has coronavirus, I might actually carry the coronavirus in my nose and throat and how likely I am to give that to someone and keep in mind, because I've been vaccinated, I might not have symptoms, how likely I am to give it to someone even though I have no symptoms is still being determined. We know from other vaccines and from preliminary data 
that it seems as though the transmission rate is significantly decreased by vaccination. And this is something that um, we will learn more about as, as time goes on, but you need to wear the mask um, and until that data comes out. And also keep in mind that as we see mutant variants come about, that wearing the mask also protects you from perhaps spreading a mutant variant that um, uh, may or may not um, be susceptible to the vaccine. Because as I've mentioned, something new could come up uh, a month from now and we would find out a month from now. They can't necessarily resume their um, the life before they can't just start going to the gym again or not being worried when they're in the grocery store. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that we need to continue to observe the good public health practices that we know work. Um, I think that as more data comes out, um, our um, evidence will dictate our, our, our behavior for the future. And so um, the scientists and leaders who are looking at the data in terms of what type of um, rates of transmission, what's the prevalence of the virus in the community, those kinds of metrics have to be incorporated into um, knowing how many people have been vaccinated in order to decide um, what what our behavior is in, in the community. And so um, uh, it may not be very satisfactory of an answer, but I would say to be determined, to be determined because it's the evidence that has to, and the data that has to drive behavior. You're right, Dr. Williams, that's, that's not what we wanna hear, right? We, we wanna hear, oh yeah, we can throw off those masks and go back to right yeah. That's what we wanna hear, that's not the case. I'm not saying never, ever. I'm simply saying that when you talk about when, it has to be something that is driven by the evidence or by the data. And we don't want to, and Commissioner Allen has heard me say this, fumble at the gold line, right? We don't want to do all of this in terms of getting vaccinated, uh, beating back this pandemic, only to say, okay, go back to life as, as you once knew it and fumble at the goal line. We don't want to do that. We want to score a win. Thank you so much for valiantly fighting through these technical issues <laughs> this afternoon. Let's see if we can finish up that, that uh, conversation we were engaged in right before we lost your signal. I was asking, um, you know, once the vaccine becomes available, do you foresee specific clinics in specific neighborhoods? And I think you were saying yes. Yes, yes. Uh, Larry, uh, we know that we've been doing right now large points of dispensing uh, at the county fairgrounds. And then also we have an ink, we're doing different locations on the uh, east side of town where we've been at eChecks that Ohio EPA is letting us use where people can drive through. Uh, in Euclid, in Warrensville Heights, uh, we were uh, recently at Word Church uh, using a fire departments, uh, Beachwood Fire Department, we use locations like that. But we also know that we need to consider indoor safe, um, you know, in terms of preventing transmission for folks, indoor locations that could be senior centers or they could be uh, gyms or, or they could be banquet halls, places where people can spread out uh, and also wait places that provide transportation where folks may not have it. We can connect them to transportation to get to these locations. We're able to call seniors and let them know the vaccine is available. And as we go forward and more vaccine is, is, is available, we need to think about uh, where our gaps are. Let's look at the data. Let's let the data make decisions on where we're, uh, if we're going to be equitable, let's find out where the people that are being vaccinated are living and where those gaps are. And then we work with the trusted uh, leaders and institutions in those communities to help us find sites that will work for them. And there and there are people that they represent. Well, you need more people because you've heard things like using the National Guard to help uh, distribute. Would we need something like that here in Cuyahoga County? The National Guard to help. I know that certainly at the state level, the governor has used the National Guard throughout for testing and. And I believe that there's some discussions about ways that they may be able to assist, particularly with senior populations for vaccination. But I think it will take all of us. We have our hospitals and our community health centers and our pharmacies reaching, uh, reaching um, seniors. 
and health departments. And now I think the National Guard can serve a, another role. This is a big county, 1.2 million people here. So I think this is a pandemic that requires an all hands approach where we're all part of the solution to help to get us uh, get us past this stage and, and uh, get as many shots in arms as we can in the coming months. Okay, so we're winding down our time here and I want to give everyone a chance for a last word, a last thought. So I'll start with you, Robert. What's the, the last thought you want to share with folks who are watching? Well, the, the last thing I want to share with the audience, and, and hopefully after I say this, they, I will have some uh, folks take me up on this. Misinformation is, is probably the, the most um, horrible thing that we can have just floating out there as far as getting people to get the vaccine. Facebook is not a trusted source of information, although a lot of people go to Facebook for their information. So what I would want folks to do is, if you're listening to this broadcast now, it's because you are interested and you are going to a source of information that is trusted. I would suggest that you continue to search out information that is trusted and that is, is, is science-based and that you share that with your circle of influence. That's the way, like Terry said, we're all in this together. We all have to work through it. And I, you know, when I see on my next door app, someone throw out something that is just totally fa false, I take it upon myself. Even if I'm gonna get the bots back at me and all the hate, I still go out and I put out factual information so that somebody will hear it and then they will pass that on uh, as well. So wanna just uh, recruit everybody to, to help us in this fight. I think as a critical care doctor, um, one of the things that I can say is that I've seen the worst of, of this pandemic. I've, I've, I've seen the absolute worst, the death and devastation from it. But I've also seen the best in terms of people coming together as partners, as teams, as messengers in the community, as people who recognize that it really is gonna take all of us. So I would leave as a, a, a parting word that, you know, as much as possible, don't, don't, don't get tired. Don't get tired and weary of doing the right thing, of, of doing what needs to be done, of uh, pitching in and, and rolling up your sleeves to, to, to do the work to get us all across the goal line. Don't 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 get tired of, of doing the right thing because really and truly, um, I've seen the good that um, uh, is coming forth um, from from this, and we're gonna we're we're gonna beat this. We're gonna beat it. That's a great message because it really is hard to stay vigilant. And Terry, I hope that your uh, technology holds up long enough for you to give your final thoughts. This will be very quick, just in case. Really. Um, I, uh, I guess I would, I think Robert is right on the nose. Misinformation has been a challenge in public health uh, through the ages. And I think in this particular case, given the interconnectedness of the world, get, using uh, valuable information sources, trusted sources, you know, going to the CDC, the state health department, your local health department, your hospitals, to get that information that's critical. So I would completely agree. We would want people to really think about the importance of being vaccinated. You may have fears, listen to trusted leaders like Dr. Williams. Um, we know that um, Pastor Vernon at Word Church in Warrensville Heights said, you know, you need to get vaccinated to protect your families. And I think you're protecting your grandparents, your parents, the people you love. And so we want people when they're ready to really, really consider getting vaccinated because we think it's our way to protect all of us. And lastly, uh, double check, triple check, and quadruple check your internet access before one of these sessions. <laughs> That's a great title, Terry. I'd like to thank the folks out there who have joined us today for this forum on COVID vaccination, vaccination and distribution process. We've been talking with Terry Allen, the Cuyahoga County Health Commissioner, Robert Jennings, Executive Director for the National Public Health Information Coalition, and Dr. Sherry Dixon-Williams, pulmonary sleep and critical care physician 
for the Metro Health System. Today's forum is part of the Health Equity Series, sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation, and part of the Healthcare Innovation Series, sponsored by Medical Mutual. Community partners for today's forum include the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging, BedWorks, and the Metro Health System. All City Club Vital all City Club virtual forums are presented for free every week thanks to the generous support from Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. And you can join them in supporting the City Club mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. That's cityclub.org. I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor from IdeaStream. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned. Adjourned.